It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to History of College Football Podcast. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Coach Mac Drinkall, Assistant Coach, Army West Point. He may be found at Twitter at, at DrinkallCoach. That's at D-R-I-N-K-A-L-L-C-O-A-C-H. It is indeed an honor to have you on my podcast. First, tell me, Coach Drinkall, all about your work as the assistant coach for the Army Black Knights. Sure. So I coach the tight ends here and, uh, you know, I'm a, obviously with West Point and Coach Munkin here. It's a it's a pretty unique situation and a pretty unique uh, program and a, one, a once in a lifetime opportunity. So uh, the other part on a personal level for me, this was my whole background is in, you know, gun pro style and spread offenses. So I uh, learning a whole new system a little bit later in the game for me has been really exciting and being part of some of the traditions here and, and the history has been, like I said, a once in a lifetime experience. I imagine I admire what you do and it goes without saying, I find your line of work incredibly fascinating. Now on my podcast, it is dedicated very often to discussing the college football history of a particular school. On episode 26, we discuss the college football history of the Army Black Knights. As coach for the Army Black Knights, I am very much interested on getting your take on a number of items surrounding Army football, both historically and currently. So first, I'll start with the coaches. In our best coach segment of our podcast, we gave the nod to coach Earl Red Blake, 1941 to 1958, 121 wins, 33 losses, 10 ties, won 76.8% of his games and won three national championships in consecutive years, 1944, 1945, and 1946. So, Coach Drinkall, in an anecdotal argument, what measuring sticks would you use to compare coaching greats from different eras? You know, I will say this, and I'm not trying to have a cop-out answer, but I think it's uh, in, in the one thing that drives me nuts about, like, sports talk radio and, and watching some of those shows on ESPN is people try to always pit two people that are great against each other and somebody has to be a winner and somebody has to be a loser. And I think that's insane. So, you know, it's just, I think it's so difficult to, to compare between eras a lot of times. Um, I think what, what would be a better way that I wish more people looked at it was just taking into consideration all the differences that made everybody so good, you know, or, or so successful in a certain era. You know, like, like when Coach Blake was coaching, it was during World War II. I mean, that's almost impossible to even comprehend somebody trying to run a college football program while that was going on and balancing that, let alone at the military academy. So uh, I can tell you this, Coach Munkin, our current head coach, is as good of a head football coach as you will find in any sport on the planet Earth, uh, from, from organization to leadership to moral and ethical code. Um, and just the skill set being such a great head coach. So they're both incredible guys. Um, I, I'm biased, obviously, because one of those guys hired me and the other one didn't. So, <laughs> you know, 
I'm a big coach Munkin fan, but also, you know, he, he does such a great job of paying, you know, paying respects to coach Blake all the time and, and making the kids aware of his legacy. Oh, what a fantastic insight. Fantastic response. Thank you so much. Can, can you speak to how this current generation at army views the legacy left by coach Earl Blake? Yeah. You know, the field here at Mikey stadium is Blake field. And if you, to get into our football facility, you have to walk by quite an impressive display of, of coach Blake's accomplishments, both in the military and as the leader of the football team. So, uh, like, like, you know, like I've mentioned, Coach Munkin does such a phenomenal job of tying in the history and the tradition at West Point, which is really a huge part of our heritage and our culture here is who, where we came from. So, uh, you know, our players are, are, are totally and readily aware of that. We're really lucky that, like, guys like Pete Dawkins, who won the Heisman Trophy, are still here and active members of the West Point community. So the tradition aspect of West Point is prob is as strong as anywhere you'll find in the whole country. Oh, fantastic. Great stuff. Thank you. Still talking about coaching, maybe let's look at it currently. When you're coaching a game, how often do you find yourself analyzing an opponent coach's decision, wondering why did he do what he just did? Yeah, so that's actually a really great question because that's changed dramatically over the last couple of years in football due to analytics. So normally I think most people, uh, not only during, you know, I think the biggest difference probably between fans and coaches is fans kind of react in a reactionary way. Like after the fact, why did this happen? What did that happen? Whereas coaches are a little bit more preventative in their thought process in the sense of, boy, if it's coming up here, it's third and it's third and four at the plus 46 yard line. This is a situation where, uh, they can get themselves into a convertible down a distance, or they might have to throw it. If they do throw it, are they going to take a sack? If they take a sack, are they going to, you know, punt it regular or pooch punt it? So coaches are running through a million different uh, scenarios in their head. But one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years is analytics using basically algorithms and, and aggregates to come up with kind of a, a odds on how to beat the house, I guess, kind of for each situation and each opponent. So uh, coaches have been getting those from different companies. There's a couple different companies that do a great job with it. And they, that data is incredibly valuable. So we use that here at West Point, like most other division one teams. And it, it drastically impacts the way that we, the game gets managed by offense, defense, and special teams. I really appreciate the nuances you bring to this podcast. Great stuff. Let's move on to the teams. This very podcast and our countdown of the top 25 teams in the history of college football, way back on episode three, we selected the 45 Army Black Knights team number nine, the 44 Army Black Knights team number eight on a list of the greatest college football teams of all time. And the line between those two teams, razor thin. In an anecdotal argument, what measuring sticks again would you use to compare the greatness of teams from different eras? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. I mean, to me, you know, you, th there's so many things that have changed and are different. And I think those aren't, aren't things to be necessarily, you know, griped about or complained about. I think it's something to be embraced. I mean, it's a, it's a way there, there's been so many changes and uh, rules and, and philosophical differences between, I mean, even the, if you look at like pro football from the eighties and nineties, to today it looks completely different advances in equipment 
how technology impacts your ability to recruit, how technology impacts your ability to, to teach as a coach. So it's, it's, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, guys today are better athletes, but boy, there's a lot of guys, coaches and players who didn't have access to a lot of things that we do now. So how do you, how do you balance those out? So to me is everybody's playing on a relative competitive field at the, at the time that they're playing. So whatever we're doing right now, we think is incredibly important. I don't want somebody 30 years from now to go, well, they weren't any good because it's 30 years ago or 50 years ago or whatever. So uh, to me is you just have to measure it against that, that era and that time. And that gives you a pretty good baseline for how to assess, assess teams. Well, I appreciate the sharpness and the detail in your response. Supportive. Thank you. If I was to ask you in your estimation, what was the greatest army team? <laughs> the next one. <laughs> that was, or Very it's good. always, I can tell you, I can tell you from how coach Munkin is, it's always next year. Like this, this next team or the team that's coming up right now that we're a part of, our goal is to be the best one. So uh, again, you know, I know that's kind of, that sounds like a cliched hokey answer, but it's, it's sincere. You know, we just, all the great teams that have come before this one, you know, just give them, tip your hat to them and, and pay them their respects because they're all great in their own way. That's the, that's, to be honest with you, that's one of maybe the coolest thing about West Point is it, it's one of the only places on the face of the earth where at West Point you could go winless. Well, at least one win, hopefully you beat Navy, but you could have a bad season as far as wins and losses and still have a, a lot of fun because you're impacting and interacting with some of the best people on the planet. So how you define success is very, it changes for me the older I get, more mature I get. You have such a great appreciation of the game. Fantastic response. Uh, Army runs the triple option. I, I need to know, how does this make your job as a coach different from other coaches from a more pass-oriented team? incredibly different in every conceivable way. And I, I say this half jokingly, but half true. What, in today's era of football, which again, you go back into the, the 50s and 60s was commonplace. Now we're, you know, whereas, you know, back in the, the 70s or 80s, if there was a spread passing team, they were an anomaly. They were an outlier. And now it's, it's completely flipped on its head to where what we do is so unique. Um, or appears to be so unique that it's, it's really difficult for teams to prepare for it. And here's the mistake that everybody makes is they think it's just a schematic adjustment. And really that's not it at all. It's a complete philosophical and cultural change from conventional styles of football. So it, it is so difficult for people to prepare for in a week or, or even if you had you know, a long time to prepare for it. Um, just not only the schematic adjustments, but the cultural part of it and, and the game management piece, it's really for us or for someone playing us, it's like you're playing a different sport using the same set of rules. Uh, so as a follow-up to that, as a coach, I'd love to know if you can tell when a team is confused by Omri's triple option attack, can you see those nuances? If I'm being totally honest with you, I, uh, I can tell it, but I can't tell it like how like Coach Munkin and Coach Davis, who have been in this system for a long time, it, it's really imp it, it's it's like jaw dropping impressive how how well they know it. It's 
like an organic piece of who they are. Like Eric, like I play a little guitar. I don't look at a guitar the same way Eric Clapton does. It doesn't look like the same thing. It's an extension of who they are. And to me, that is how those guys operate with this offense that have seen it and have all these answers. So that they not only know when someone's struggling, they know every tiny minute detail of what's causing them from formation to blocking scheme adjustment to option rules to, you know, figuring out philosophically what they're trying to do defensively to, to rule up how to play option. So uh, I don't see it like that. I just get the tight ends to do what they're told and do it as, as hard and as fast as they can. Uh, excellent, excellent stuff. Coach, Coach, why is it that both Army and Navy run the triple option? So it's actually funny you bring that up. So I'll I'll dispel a pretty widespread myth. So when you talk about option football, it's it's really about ball distribution and reads. So if you look at spread teams that run like zone read with a bubble or RPO attached to it, they probably run as much or more triple option than the academies do. Um, which is really weird. The thing that the academies do that's so unique is that that is their base, that like the very uh, nuts and bolts ground level foundation of the offense that they install is option based as opposed to pro style or, or spread or, or some version or hybrid of the, of all three systems. So the thing that makes it the most difference is the personnel that they do it out of. So flex bone personnel where you have, you know, bigger receivers that can block two little, uh, you know, smaller, faster backs that are slots, uh, you know, and then, and running quarterbacks and then linemen that aren't monstrous, that they're, they're smaller, but, you know, very good athlete, quick feet. Um, they're just, they're lighter and not as big because they're asked to do different things um, schematically. So the academies are all, very similar in that regard because the academies are you know if you look at uh how you it all stems from your ability to recruit okay so your ability to recruit at an academy they're incredibly selective as an institution so you not only like at an academy for example when you recruit to west point not only do you have to find someone who's talented enough to play division one football they also have to be an incredible student they also have to be willing to serve their country. They also have to be in the, the highest moral and ethical value set. So when you start to, and they have to be interested. So when you start to factor all those variables, variables and compound them together, it makes the, the pool that you can select from far lesser than uh, like a regular state school, for example. Um, so as a result, uh, you can, you want to collect more, as many people as you can that are kind of like, uh, maybe overlooked for one reason or another, you know, maybe boy, you know, boy, he's, he's only six foot two instead of six foot five, but he might be a great player, but, a, uh, you know, a, an LSU or a Iowa Hawkeyes or Boston college or UCLA, they want a six foot four, or six foot five guy that's going to continue to grow and get bigger. Whereas we might not be able to get that guy. So it, what that forces people to do, now we have some players that are incredible and can play everywhere, but the option was predicated around 
if you don't have the big enough guys to block everybody, what you can do is you can read two of them and make yourself right. That makes perfect sense to me. I see where you're coming from. Coach, let's turn to the games themselves. We have a most stunning win segment on our podcast. I have two questions for you here. Historically, what was the most stunning win in your estimation in Army football history? Yeah, Army history, I'm not as well versed as, uh, as I should be, but you would imagine uh, any game that you're beating Navy is probably a pretty good one, <laughs> and especially if it results in a national championship. So to me, those are pretty good. Now, uh, I, they're, all, they're all huge, but I will tell you this, like in, in recent, re, you know, recency bias probably that everyone can look at now that there's been like TV and internet and, and things along those lines. I would tell you when Coach Munkin got here and they broke the streak, there had been a, a long streak where the Naval Academy had won a bunch of games against Navy or against the Army consecutively. And when they broke the streak um, and ended that drought, that was pandemonium. You mean people talk about that today like it happened yesterday. And you can just see that that was the turning point for the rebuild that Coach Munkin got done here. And now since that point in time, he's taken them to unparalleled success at, at all academies, especially West Point. So I'd probably pick that game. Bravo, very eloquently said, as a matter of fact. Thank you. If you had to pick all oh, the two or even three most satisfying wins you've been involved in as a coach with Army, what would they be? Oh, no brainer. Now, I've only been here through two seasons, but it's no brainer. The last two games are our regular season this year. So we had an incredibly unique situation happen because of COVID, where normally the, the Army Navy game, first off, you normally play Air Force. Uh, throughout the course of the season in a, in a, you know, in a middle of the year game. And the army Navy game is the last regular season game of college football. So, and it's played at a neutral site. Well, due to COVID our air force during the year got COVID uh, and had to bump our game to the end of the year. And then because of COVID, we had to change the location. Uh, Mike buddy, our athletic director and coach Munkin and the administrative staff here did an unbelievable job of rescheduling the army navy game to campus here at west point for the first time since 1943 or 44 i believe um so it hasn't happened in a long time and won't happen again for a long time and it's played on somebody's campus so to show up you know to have you know the, to have both student bodies in the in mikey stadium which is a historic stadium and then not only win but shut them out at home and have an incredible goal line stand and, and really play really well for us and to see coach monk and beat them at our at our home that was probably the most uh, that's either the most memorable or satisfying but then the following week the very next week we had to turn right around and play the air force academy at mikey stadium again the game that was made up so this was for the now. So earlier in the year, Air Force had beaten Navy. He played outright for the winner. So uh, the Commander in Chief Trophy is the only trophy that you win by beating. You have to win two games to win it, and you have to do it in the same year. So it's a, right. it's as cool of a trophy as you can as you can find. So 
to be able to go and and we had it we put together a eight minute drive on the very last possession of the game and scored with a minute left to take the lead right. and then forced a turnover on the next play to win the commander in chief trophy at West Point at home right after beating Navy. That to me is something that will, you know, I remember being in the locker room after that game. That's something I'll remember for the rest of my life. I can only imagine that's phenomenal stuff. So, so let's talk a little about the army Navy football game. Coach, I, I had, to be honest with you, removed an item on my bucket list. I went to the big house with my son, Dig, to watch the Ohio State-Michigan game. Army, Navy sure. is next on my list, on my list, yeah. Can you speak to what it's like to be present for an Army-Navy game? There's nothing like it. Now, I haven't been to a Super Bowl, but I think even that's kind of commercialized pretty hard. Uh, the only other thing I can tell you that, I, that I've been to that was – like to me, there needs to be like, uh, like you said, a bucket list or a Mount Rushmore of sporting events you have to go to. I would put the the that I've experienced. The Indy 500 is on there, but there is nothing like the Army Navy game. The the what those kids like, what goes it gets overlooked because the institutions are so good or the people that make them so good. And our the players and student athletes here, and, and across the board, whether they're on the football team or not are unlike any people I've ever met. Like, it's an honor just to be around them. And I told them this in fall camp this past year. It's not even like you're coaching them. It's like you're working with them, like as peers. Wow. And, and they're, they're unbelievable people. So when you and, – and everybody involved in getting the Army-Navy game, it's the longest running game. It's the most heated rivalry and I will tell you, it, it, there's nothing like it. It is a spectacle. They've got college game day and barstool sports, and it's been played in uh, Philadelphia for a long time. I believe this year it moved to Met, uh, MetLife Stadium in, in the Meadowlands uh, in Jersey and New York, right in that area. But it's just the what's involved and, and the, the history, the traditions involved, there is absolutely nothing like it. I can say whether you're a sports fan or not, you absolutely unequivocally owe it to yourself to go attend an Army Navy game. Well, that's, that's, that's just beautiful. That is beautiful. Very, very well said. The, the game ends, Coach, with, with Honor the Fallen. As a coach, can you encapsulate that moment for us? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know, it, it's incredibly humbling to be a part of it as somebody like my brother is retired Navy, which I don't tell a lot of people around here. Uh, and my, my brother-in-law is a retired colonel in the, uh, in the army and my grandpa fought in world war II, uh, both of them actually. And it was just so, but I've never served. So I know I have a much better understanding and appreciation now having seen what our kids do on a daily basis and the sacrifices they make to be able to serve our country. And it is for me, a very deeply personal and just humbling experience because they represent the best of humanity. And, and I, and I sincerely mean that on both sides of the coin, you know, the, the, the thing I, I didn't understand about the army Navy game. And I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying it, this is just my own opinion, but I, I really thought prior to getting here, it was a, you know, a hatred rivalry, like an Iowa or Iowa state or, or Alabama and Auburn or Michigan and Ohio state. And it's not like that at all at least not my, my experience with it. My experience is that the two teams are so prestigious and know 
that all of America and the world is watching and every service member is watching. And it is, they want to win so badly as a badge of honor that they can barely even breathe to do it. Like it, it is, it's totally different. It's not, you know, the kids on both sides respect each other unequivocally, uh, no matter how much you let the pageantry or the rivalry get involved. But it's just, it, it is such a point of pride to win that game. Um, I, I, I can't even put it in words. Cause like I said, I, I just, I'm lucky enough to get to watch it and be a part of it. I appreciate how you wrapped it into a historical context too. Coach, my dad was stationed at Schofield Barracks, was at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. The respect that I have for you, your program, it, it's unparalleled. Let, let, let's turn to, to, to memorable plays. What is the most memorable play or plays you've been involved with as a coach with Army? Ooh. Uh Again, recency bias, I would probably say, <laughs> I don't know, a couple. The, the the ones that are fresh in my mind, just because not only are they recent, but the magnitude of them was just, uh, you know, the last three games of the season for us mm. were just in, unbelievable this past year. Uh, you know, we played Georgia Southern, who's really well coached, really talented football team, and things got off to a terrible start for us with some self-inflicted uh, wounds that our kids battled back and won. And then and it was a physical game and an emotional game. And we had to turn around in consecutive weeks to get after and play Navy and, and Air Force. But, you know, I, I would tell you, you know, the goal line stand in the Navy game, the fourth down where we stop them short on the, on the fullback dive to the left, mm. where we stopped them short. And really that took a lot of wind out of their sails that you could feel it. Uh, during the course of the game, you know, momentum's a really hard thing to kind of quantify, and and you could fit, you could feel it. Uh, so that was a huge one. Um, and then obviously the uh, the last touchdown of the Army Air Force game this past year that we ran a, a, a zone dive play to the right to our 260 pound fullback Jacoby Buchanan uh, right behind. Uh, ironically, or I shouldn't say ironically, very oddly. Two kids from the same high school, a junior, uh, Chris Cameron, and a freshman, Connor Finucan, who are both from uh, the same high school in Louisiana, ran yeah. it right behind them and, and to win the, win the game and the Commander Chief Trophy. And then uh, as soon as they got the ball back, uh, Quabina Bantu deflected a pass and Eric Smith intercepted it to steal it. And those were just those moments. I, I have a hard time with my memory sometimes as far as like I know stuff happened but I have a hard time unless I see pictures of visual stimuli of it to like really put myself back into what it, what it sounded like and what it smelled like and what it felt like. But those kind of, you know, consecutive games, consecutive plays, I kind of see as that two week stretch is one big moment, I guess, uh, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. Oh, that sounds like marvelous moments. Let's turn to players. Let's turn to players, coach. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, no, go ahead. Our podcast had a difficult time deciding on the best Army player. How do you choose? you got three Heisman winners, fullback Doc Blanchard, running back Glenn Davis, running back Pete Dawkins. And, and we gave the nod to, to Glenn Davis, Mr. Outside, who won the Heisman in 46. And when you look at in 44, he had this unimaginable 11.5 yards per rush. And then somehow he, he repeated that feat in 45, 11.51 yards per rush, even slightly better. 
in your opinion, who is the best army player that you've ever watched? It's, it's hard. It's hard to count out Heisman trophy winners. When you think about how many kids play college football in a season across the entire nation that a bunch right. of people right. give the award to one guy. So, uh, you know, those guys are a pretty good start, but you know, the one thing I will tell you about the Heisman is and not even the Heisman, but just the guys that get overlooked so much are the guys in the trenches. And there's so many, like I said, just hard to quantify sometimes how impactful some of those guys are. You know, I got to watch them on film a whole bunch, but boy, you got to watch guys like uh, Brett Toth and Bryce Holland, who are offensive linemen here at Army right before I got here. Uh, You know, Bryce has gone on to graduate first in his class at Army Rangers School. Uh, He was the starting center here and was as good of a player as you'll ever find anywhere. Brett Toth is currently playing in the NFL right now. And so, but hard to say, but boy, there's been a lot of good ones. And, and I think if you start with the guys who won the Heisman trophy, that's a pretty good starting point. (laughs) Great response. So a few purely fun questions for you, coach, just, just, just to get your take on a favorite player in college football history. Man, favorite player. So mine I'm going to be incredibly biased, but mine is, mine is Tavian Banks, probably. He played running back for the Iowa Hawkeyes back in, in 97. Uh, he was, he's from my high school, so I watched him play in high school when I was a really little kid in grade school. And then he went to Iowa and sat on the bench for three years. But the one year they let him play, his last year, he, uh, he was the Big Ten player of the year and I think is still the fastest running back in college history to 1,000 yards and was just an unbelievably dynamic player that I grew up just loving. Uh, got drafted, played in the NFL with the Jaguars, and I think, unfortunately, in his second year, suffered a, a career-ending knee injury. But, I, you know, I was, I was partial to him because I was built a little bit more like him, but mm. I really liked watching Eddie George when I was little, too. Eddie George, that huge running back from Ohio State, and he was he was just so unique looking because he was he was six foot four or six foot five. I've seen him in person on a flight in Newark, and I could not my jaw hit the in my when I was thirty six years old. I saw him, and I could not believe how big he was that they let him play running back. Tommy Frazier, the quarterback from oh, sure. Nebraska. Man, those guys like that was the heyday of the, those kind of mid nineties. Those were when you're a little kid and you're innocent and you're just watching guys and you're going out in the backyard or the park and you're trying to emulate those guys, those are the guys during those times are so incredibly just impactful in your, uh, in your development and, and, and childhood there. It's hard to, hard to pass those over, but so all those guys have a special place in my heart. Coach, what is your most memorable play in college football history? Ooh, the single most memorable play. Well, I remember when in 93, I think it was, I grew up in the Midwest in Iowa and, and uh, you know, born and raised in a Catholic family. So you always are kind of an outside cheering for Notre Dame. Hmm. And Notre Dame had beaten uh, number one Florida State with Charlie Ward, who went on to win the Heisman Trophy. And they turned around and had to play Boston College. And all they had to do was win, and they were either going to go to the national championship or be national champions. 
And Boston College hit a 45-yard bomb when I was a little kid that just absolutely broke my heart. I couldn't believe it. You know, so uh, I, I don't know why I was so invested uh, invested with Notre Dame at the time. I just kind of grew up watching whatever was on TV, on cable. And, you know, those guys have been on NBC and, and cable for a long time. So uh, that's probably, for me, the most memorable one. But, you know, I remember the uh, Cordell Stewart to Michael Westbrook, Hail Mary from Colorado against Michigan. That was certainly uh, that was certainly up there in one of them where you just couldn't believe, couldn't believe it. Uh, the other one, I guess, is when I was in college, it happened was the called pass interference in the national championship game of uh, Ohio State and Miami was another memorable one because it was over and that. And then Ohio State got to keep the ball, and that really kind of ended Miami, who everybody thought was really just unbeatable. That was a that was an unbelievable just turn of events where you thought the the play was over and the Nash Miami was national champion then they brought it back and Ohio State ended up winning like that was just that led to an emotional roller coaster absolutely greatest game in college football history Ooh, man greatest game you know the you know one that again this isn't in college football history, but at least for, at least for me, when I was a really little kid growing up in Iowa, you always hear about the 85 Iowa Michigan game and got to watch it as I, you know, replays of it. It was 12, nine, I believe. Yes. It was yes. number one, yes. number one versus number two. And that was a huge, huge, you know, that's a big deal. The Iowa Hawkeyes aren't, aren't uh, usually up ranked up that high on a consistent basis. But uh, the other one was just, you know, when, when Nebraska played Florida with Tommy Frazier and scored 63 points for whatever reason, that just, I know that's not the greatest game, but that one sure stuck out as far as just, holy cow. Like when, it, you know, when a good team is on and going and the other team isn't at their best, no matter who you are, the tide can swing so fast. Oh, I can see that. Biggest upset in college football history in your estimation? Um, you know, I, I hate to pound on Michigan, but I would say the Michigan App State, that was a big one. Uh, <laughs> that was, that again, during my lifetime that I remember how impactful that was, and how big of a deal that was. But you'd, you'd certainly think that would be, that would be up there. And just the manner of which it, it happened was just a kind of a crazy, a crazy situation. App State has gone on, you know, that really was a catalyst for them to just have an unbelievable program ever since. They were very good then but they've had as good of a run over the course of 20, 30 years as you can be probably. And they did it during a, a transition from FCS to FBS. And, and have just, that's a very difficult move for anybody. And it's just crazy. How, like a moment like that, as you get the further you get away from it, you get a chance to really reflect and, and see the magnitude of something along those lines. Oh, phenomenal. But best best game best game ever. Uh, going back to that, probably yes. the, the Texas USC game. That's my, Texas my son, USC. Bro. My son Dig thinks that's the greatest game in history. You've just made a point with my son. Very well said. It it probably was. I just running through a million games in my head because I'm a football junkie. So I'm I'm going back all the way in my head to as far as I can remember. But that's a that's that one's pretty tough to beat. <laughs> that is tough to beat. Coach, what was the greatest team in college football history? The game? The team. 
greatest team. Oh, yes, coach. Oh, I don't know. Anybody that's gone undefeated in the course of a season, it has to be in the discussion. And then from there, I don't know how you weed them all out. But, you know, I think uh, I, I think some of the tough times is like which Alabama team to pick from. I think that's a they're, they're kind of in their own little stratosphere as far as having to sort that thing out. But, you know, doing what those guys did and, you know, I'll give credit as a coach. I'll say this in defense of Alabama and LSU's and I think a lot of times, take Alabama this year, a lot of times it's very easy for coaches to be dismissive and say, well, you know, Alabama has the best players. Well, every kid that plays at LSU or Georgia or Auburn or Ohio State, they probably also had scholarship offers to go to Alabama. So when they play teams like them, it's not like the talent discrepancy is just off the charts different. And when you take a combination of the, ta- the, the ultra level of talent, the culture that a place has, and then you factor in the schematic things that are going on, on on all three phases of the game, you know, to me, when you can win as convincingly against everybody, I think those are, those are really the teams that you need to look at. And, and Alabama, and again, I hate to be, you know, recency biased, but the Alabama and LSU teams the last two years just been, they're different than everywhere else. And, but as, as a result, you got to go back a little, you know, those early 2000 Miami teams and, and those USC teams in the mid 2000s. I mean, they're, those, every era has probably two or three years in each decade that you could really make a great argument for. And there's no way to really piece them together, just enjoy them and say, man, these guys are all awesome. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your insight that you bring. Thank you so much. Well, Coach, it's been an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you, Coach Drinkall. You've been a phenomenal guest. Again, Coach Matt Drinkall, Assistant Coach, Army West Point. He may be found on Twitter at at DrinkallCoach. That is at D-R-I-N-K-A-L-L-C-O-A-C-H. Follow this man. Thank you for listening to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode.